I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up, talk about that darn fly that landed on the vice president's head during the debate this week. And then we're going to talk about the need for hugs during this pandemic time. And finally, we're going to hit once again on the importance of staying safe during a pandemic. Later on in the pod, we're going to be interviewing Dr. Dwight Moody, who is the founder of TheMeetingHouse.net. So stay tuned. Autumn, how are things? Things are going well. It's been sort of an adventure since we last potted together. It has been uh, over the last uh, several months. In fact, this is our 40th episode, believe it or not. Autumn and I, uh, the first couple, got to actually be in a studio together. Well, it's actually a makeshift studio in my house, but uh, we were uh, being able to, to see each other face-to-face. And then the pandemic broke out, and we ended up potting over Zoom, as everybody else is doing. And now we're back in the studio. We are in the studio. We are COVID-free. Um, it's the cool way to be. <laughs> and not a lot of people can say that right now. No, they can't. Um, you know, something's going on around Pennsylvania Avenue, Autumn. I mean, there's this strange infiltration of COVID-19 into the White House. How did it get there? You know, I don't know. I have seen some people posting that. It's sort of conspiratorial that none of the Democrats have COVID. (laughs) Well, that is true, most likely because they were not in the Rose Garden when the president announced his Supreme Court justice pick. Uh, A lot of Republicans were there uh, touting uh, and celebrating his pick, Uh, but they did so without any social distancing, without wearing of mask, and citing that it was an outdoor event, they forget to remind the public that they actually went indoors after the cameras turned off and had an indoor event. And again, no social distancing, no mask. And all of a sudden, guess what? The President of the United States and the First Lady now have contracted COVID. What are we going to do about this? I don't really know. I I think one of the big gripes has been that there hasn't been a lot of leadership on this. When it comes to COVID, people have wondered why our leaders haven't been more forthcoming about what needs to happen, but they're not even leading by example. They're not even keeping their own family safe. So do they really not believe the science behind disease prevention? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you know, they, and, you know I was watching the debate the other night, and, you know, Pence mentioned scientists and the importance of Fauci and, and Burks and others, but it's like it goes in one ear and completely out the other mm-hmm. because they can't say they believe it and then don't practice and take heed what these scientists are saying. And it's like, well, we got to be free. We've got to be free. Well, at what cost? Mm -hmm. Your freedom is costing the deaths of over 200,000 of your fellow citizens. Yeah. And talking about living in fear, like it's not living in fear. It's living with caution and being smart. Right. And there's so much shame around people who wear masks and, I, I just, it baffles me completely. It absolutely baffles me. Well, speaking of the debate the other night, there was a visitor who landed <laughs> on the vice president and stole the show. It really did. Suddenly it was like that dog that's a squirrel. Everyone in the whole country was just talking about this little fruit fly that was on his head. Uh, you know, the vice president could have been 
you know, elo- eloquently describing a policy. Would not have been nice. <laughs> but nobody was paying one bit of attention to whatever he was saying <laughs> because that fly, it stayed on his head for two minutes. There was a point where I thought, that poor thing is stuck in his hairspray. <laughs> he cannot get out. It was very coiffed, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it was, I think we all have such high-definition televisions, and they really zoomed in on his face. And... It was just so funny and distracting. I think the whole country kind of needed a minute to just laugh mm-hmm. um, and just have a bit of a reprieve, which is something that you wrote about this week for us, just having a break from the crazy. We do. I mean, the world seems to be spinning out of control, and just I mean, just the things that we're talking about here today with COVID-19 now inflicting the its pain on the White House and everybody involved in there, and again, over 200,000 of our fellow citizens dying mm-hmm. The election, the wildfires out west continue to rage. Again, another unarmed black man was killed this week when he was trying to break up a domestic fight. I mean, it it, it just makes you want to scream Mm -hmm. or just curl up in your bed and never get out. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote a column this week uh, over the weekend uh, my family went over to Tulsa. We live in the Oklahoma City area in Norman, Oklahoma. We went over to the Tulsa area to see my brother and his family. And unfortunately, because of COVID, we haven't been able to see them very often, like many families have been apart during this time. And so I had seen him about a month or two ago when they had given birth uh, to their newest son. And they've got another son there who's a toddler. And my wife and I went over and, and played with him. Uh, we call him KK. Mm-hmm. And uh, as his mom and dad gave birth to his little brother. So we went over there this last weekend, and I didn't think, you know, KK was going to remember me much or, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, because I mean, he hadn't seen me in two months. Well, anyway, I walk through the door, and he looks at me, and he begins to sob. <sighs> and he sprints to me. And he throws his arms around my legs, and I sweep him up, and hand to God, he did not move for an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he just held on to me, and he napped off and on, and, you know, we woke up a little bit later on in the day, we played in the floor, we... You know, I taught him things that only uncles can teach their nephews. <laughs> you know, like your brother's crazy, or your dad's crazy. Well, <laughs> <Ignore sure. him. laughs> uh, but as I was contemplating and reflecting back upon that day, I began to realize something. Yeah, my little nephew clung to me and wanted me to hold him as he napped, and just wanted to be next to me. But what I discovered is I was not holding him. He was holding me. Mm -hmm. And his hug that time is exactly the medicine I needed. Yeah. Because there's so much that people are going through. I mean, we mentioned the big stuff that you see in the newspaper and watch on TV. But often we forget that life is still happening. The everyday struggles of life still emerge. Mm -hmm. And people are trying not only to grasp the larger issues, but they're trying to deal with these very personal issues as well. Mm-hmm. And we just need a break. We need a hug. We need support. 
we need to find some commonality with those that we are close to in order to gain some strength to get through this. Mm-hmm. And that hug just reminded me the other day that I needed that more than anything in the world. My little nephew probably put this entire ordeal in perspective for me. Yeah. And showed me what really mattered. Yeah. I was talking to some mom friends at soccer practice the other day, and we're talking about some of our kids seem to be spiraling a little bit out of control behaviorally. And as someone with a child development background, like I know they're little like barometers for Mm -hmm. the culture and for what's going on. And they can sense when their parents are nervous. So when every adult they come into contact with has an extra layer of tension and, you know, not only should we be careful with how we're interacting with grownups, but also with children, but also sometimes to just sit on the floor and soak up the innocence. And they, like you said in your article, they only know love and the opposite of it. You know, they don't know all the junk in the middle. And so I feel very hashtag blessed <laughs> to be in a house right now. You know, we were quarantined for so long, but we have four of these little, you know, shiny reminders of the, the world isn't ending, you know, it feels like it is, but their futures matter. And a lot of the decisions and the fights that we're in right now are for them, but we have to kind of soak them up while we're doing it. Right. And, you know, and just, again, being very intentional of trying to find those moments. And, mm-hmm. you know, we were intentional about going over and seeing my brother and his family, but then also just those moments that spring up that are spontaneous. Never take those for granted. But in our intentionality, sometimes spontaneity emerges mm-hmm. like it did in Tulsa for me. And I was thinking about the other night. I mean, mm-hmm. your family's been uh, you know, practicing very strict and strenuous COVID safety precautions. My family has as well. Mm-hmm. And so uh, our family's got together a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. and we just had a family night of playing a game. And uh, I can't even remember what the game was called. It was it was something about ghosts and something. some kind of haunted house, <laughs> something haunted house kind of a thing. But it was just so lovely yeah. uh, to just you know kind of set everything aside for a moment, enjoy each other's company, laugh, um, and just get lost in a moment that I think we all need. It felt normal for a minute, mm-hmm. which was so nice. Yeah, and I'm really hoping that after the election, either outcome. That we can just resume so normal. I know the virus is still going to be out there, but at least there won't be this extra layer of tension that's been mounting for mm-hmm. the past year. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we have uh, gotten through a lot today, but uh, we've got more to come. We're going to be sitting down with Dr. Dwight Moody here in just a moment, talking about the meetinghouse.net that he founded. It is a website that's got a podcast, radio show. He reviews books, writes commentary. And then also we're going to talk a little bit about an academy that he founded called the Academy of Preachers. And we have a little bit of fun with Dr. Moody with uh, that (laughs) title because it sounded a little like uh, the X-Men and Professor Xavier. (laughs) But but, uh, at any rate, uh, we have a great conversation. So you want to stick around for Dr. Moody. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and on this episode, we have a very special guest with us, Dr. Dwight Moody. Dr. Moody has fulfilled his ministerial calling already as pastor, preacher, author, administrator, professor, social entrepreneur, and now radio host. Born and raised, educated in Kentucky, he graduated from Georgetown College and studied also at Jerusalem University College and Notre Dame University. 
He holds a Doctor of Philosophy degree in Systematic Theology from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Moody has served as pastor of churches in Indiana, Pennsylvania, and Kentucky. From 1997 to 2008, he was the Dean of the Chapel and Professor of Religion at Georgetown College in Kentucky. In 2009, he founded the Academy of Preachers. Wow, we got to talk about that. And served as its first president <laughs> until 2017. Dr. Moody is author of five books and many scholarly articles. His weekly column on religion and American life is distributed each Thursday morning. And interested persons may join the weekly readers by using the subscription feature at themeetinghouse.net. Dr. Moody, it is great to have you and welcome to Good Faith Weekly. It's a delight to be in Good Faith Media. Thank you for inviting me. I look forward to our conversation. Yeah, well, you know, at the, before we started recording, you asked how long this was going to be. Um, it was just long enough for your introduction. <laughs> yeah. go, no, go straight to the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you have an illustrious career like Dr. Moody, you got to get all these things in. Uh, uh, well, Dwight, uh, we've been asking all of our guests at Good Faith Media the same introductory question. Uh, during these days of pandemic, it seems to be even on the rise over the last couple of weeks, uh, certainly has infected Washington, D.C., and more particularly the White House the last couple of days. But we want to know about you. How are you and your family coping during these days of pandemic? We are all healthy. There's been no COVID, although my son and his girlfriend are going tomorrow to be tested because they evidently, they told me last night, were in a compromising situation uh, over the weekend. But we're all healthy. My grandson, 10-year-old grandson, is finishing up three weeks with me. He lives in Charlotte, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. They're not having any school at all. Well, they are, but it's all online. Right. And he is a seventh grader, doing well, being healthy. Um, so we're all good health-wise. Good. Good. That's great to hear. Yeah, it is. So you recently launched The Meeting House to promote conversations on religion and American life. Can you tell us a little bit about why you wanted to launch that site and what the response has been? I actually started this in Owensboro, Kentucky, back in, gosh, 90 or 94, when a member of our church there uh, hosted, at the time, the longest-running radio show in the state of Kentucky. She had a three-hour show on Sunday morning. She asked me to come in on Sunday morning and do a five-minute devotional. I'm sure she was not prepared for what I started doing, which was this commentary on religion and American life. And then in 1997, when Dr. Crouch invited me to come to Georgetown College as dean of the chapel, he told me one of the things he wanted me to do was to launch a radio show. I was glad to do that and um, I worked with a colleague to uh, name it and frame it as the meetinghouse.net and um, we, uh, so I launched it in 1998 at Georgetown College and stayed on the air for about three years, but I found that it was just more that I could do while I was teaching and uh, leading the chapel and raising money and recruiting students and all the other things you do as a college administrator. So I continued writing my column 
And then when I quote, quote, retired from the Academy of Preachers and came down here to Georgia, I decided to relaunch it. So three years ago, almost, I relaunched it as a newsletter and website. And then, and then about a year ago, I launched a radio version of it. Mm. Now I do a radio show. So we do, uh, I do the news, five news stories every week. Um, I do a commentary every week. Um, many weeks I do a book review and then I interview people and I play music. It's great. I love it. <laughs> now, one of the features on the site is politics and prayer. Now, I think we can all agree that our politicians need our prayer, some more than others. But this idea of politics and prayer, it's just not, I mean, it is about praying for our leaders and uh, our, our representatives, but it's more than that. Can you explain to our audience a little bit about what this politics and prayer is about? Well, I wrote that article last week uh, in response to encouragement from several listeners and readers who were uh, dealing with, like we all are, the stress, the anxiety, the uncertainty, the fear, even in some places the hostility. And uh, they... Uh, suggested that, uh, you know, the country needs more prayer. I actually began to research this and discovered that there are several prayer movements. And then was it last Saturday or the week before there was a major prayer rally, quote, quote, prayer rally. Right. COVID rally. Yeah, it was a COVID rally. <laughs> COVID slash prayer rally. Um, it was the encouragement of some of my listeners to address this issue, which I was reluctant to do, to tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. um, but I wrote this column uh, last week about prayer, and then, of course, the next day, the president gets sick. Right, sure. And, uh, all of a sudden, everybody all over the Internet is talking about, should we pray for the president? How should we pray for the president? I'm not going to pray for the president. Mm -hmm. I'm praying for him to be defeated. I mean, all of these types of things, and um, it's actually one of my news stories this week about the prayers for the president that bubbled up all around social media last week. Mm -hmm. uh, did, it, did it remind you so much of that part in Fiddler on the Roof when they asked the rabbi, how should we pray for the czar? <laughs> <laughs> timely article and uh, we really appreciated it and you uh, you can check it out at uh, the meetinghouse.net so so another element of your site you review books so can you tell us about some of the most important books you've read recently well i have read a string of books about race and religion mm. certainly um uh, the books the end of white christian america uh quite too long when I read White Too Long, which was written by Robert P. Jones, who grew up a Baptist in Jackson, a white Baptist in Jackson, Mississippi, his testimony throughout this whole book is essentially my testimony. 
and it gripped me powerfully. He talked about uh, the role of, well, he said this, his research shows that the best predictor of having a racist attitudes is being a white Christian. Mm. Mm. And the church itself is the chief institutional carrier of racism. I began to think, well, what role has theology played in this? And I pulled off of the shelf four big systematic theology books that I had read and studied. Dale Moody, who was my mentor, Dan Stiver, who was my colleague in the doctoral program, Larry Hart, who was Dale Moody's student and now for his whole career has been teaching systematic theology in a Pentecostal setting. And then um, the fourth one, it'll come to me in just a minute. I reviewed all four of these books from the perspective of white supremacy. Mm. And I was just stunned and shocked and ashamed at what these, my friends, have written without hardly a trace of attention to racism. All of them, especially those three that I named, shaped one in Missouri, one in, uh, two in Texas, shaped by uh, white supremacy and racism, but it just does not bubble up in their books at all. Mm-hmm. I was right then to write a book about this, which I'll tell you about if you want to know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I, I thought to myself, I'm going to write a book about systematic theology, but Mm -hmm. my my sister said, write a novel. Oh, wow. Oh, that's going to be fascinating then. So I've decided to write a novel and sell as many copies of it as the Left Behind series. (laughs) There you go. I'm here for that. Right, 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 right. Well, good. Well, I can't wait till the book comes out. And the books that you mentioned that you're reading are just absolutely excellent. There are so many good books right now regarding racial justice and uh, you know white privilege, white supremacy, uh, and certainly encourage all of our readers to, to get their hands on some of these books and go to Dr. Moody's site to uh, read his reviews of some of these books. Now, in the introduction, I mentioned a little organization that you founded that, quite frankly, sounds like a bunch of theological nerds getting together called the Academy of Preachers. You were its president and found, you were the founder and president until 2017. Now, I'm going to try not to make any analogies to the X Men and Professor Xavier, <laughs> these superpowers that you brought these you know, young preachers together uh, to hone their skills, but. Talk a little bit about that, because I think it's really fascinating, because people who, uh, especially lay people, when I was, I was in pastoral ministry for 25 years before I took this position with Good Faith Media, they were always really interested in the art and craft of preaching. And people a lot of times didn't understand all of the, the details that went into creating a sermon. So tell us a little bit about the Academy, why you founded it, and what you learned from that experience. He'd tell you, but he'd have to kill you. (laughs) That's right. Well, here's the thing. While I was the dean of the chapel at Georgetown College, we got a $2 million grant that ended up being $2.55 million before it was over. Mm -hmm. As part of a network of schools, 
doing programs for the theological exploration of vocation. You may be familiar with these. Mm-hmm. I directed this program with our students, trying to help them to think theologically and spiritually about their careers. What I discovered in working with the ministerial students on our campus is that while we might have at any given time at Georgetown College as many as 100 students who self-identify as ministerial students, there weren't four, five, or six who wanted to be preachers. Mm-hmm. In my conversation with the Lilly Endowment about this, how, how stunning it was to me, how concerned I was about it, how our other ministerial leaders the religion faculty, Jack Birdwistle, the late Jack Birdwistle, whom uh, you may re- recall, we began to think about what we could do to address this issue for the white Baptist kids in our part of Kentucky. But in conversation with the endowment about this, they recognized this as a problem all over the country. Mm-hmm. Um, I could talk about why I think that is, but what happened was they asked me to design something that would address this need, that would help to, as our motto later said, to identify, network, support, and inspire young people in their calling to gospel preaching. Well, they told me to do it. They gave me some money. I resigned from the college and began to visit campuses Uh, to talk to professors and students and pull together a student leadership team of about 13 young people who were uh, called in the ministry. From the very beginning, I was intent on making it as ecumenical and as inclusive as possible. And uh, in January of 2010, we sponsored the first of what has been an annual national festival of young preachers. 92 young people showed up at the St. Matthew's Baptist Church on a cold, winter, snowy, icy day uh, in January. They were Catholic, Orthodox, mainline, Protestant, Evangelical, Pentecostal, all of them, black and white, male and female. We thought then... And I have thought every year when these young people gathered with that kind of diversity that these festivals are the most ecumenically diverse gatherings of Christians in the United States. Yeah. They were uh, right-wing, left-wing, progressive, fundamentalist people who would never, ever be together right. under any other circumstance except for their interest in preaching. They came together, we gave them 15 minutes, we gave them a theme that they had to preach from, we put them in a room and gave them a microphone and a sermon evaluator and let them loose. Wow. Really what we did is, uh, you know, most conferences on preaching, I've been to many, the people sit and a few people get up and speak. Mm -hmm. We really flipped the script on that we gave all 92 of those young people the microphone, and we had a whole slew of well-known professors, politicians, preachers, sitting on the back rows, listening, taking notes, making comments, and then talking to these young people. It turned out to be a uh, powerful and dramatic uh, episode in the lives of many people. Yeah, We began to have regional festivals. We've had them all over Texas. 
uh, Austin, Texas at the Presbyterian Seminary there, Houston, Texas at the um, Church Without Walls, uh, the Christian Seminary in, uh, in Fort Worth. Uh, so uh, then we started having campus festivals. Well, so, I mean, obviously you have encountered a lot of preachers from a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different traditions. What what have you seen change over the years in preaching? Have there been has there been a a subtle or drastic change in the way ministers are delivering their sermons? Well, I would have to say that in the roughly 10 years in which I was involved in in the academy of young preachers, um, we didn't see a lot of change over that 10-year period. Mm -hmm. Um, The things that we noticed is um, there's an awful lot of enthusiasm among these young people for preaching. And while we were at Georgetown College and many other isolated campuses were dealing with with a dearth of young preachers, we uncovered a vast network of young people who are passionate about it, and I'll tell you this, are very, very good. And it was heartening, and I can't tell you how many times people my age attending these festivals said to me in private, this is the most hopeful event I've been to in a long, long time. Mm -hmm. I wish there had been something like this when I was their age. Now, we found... Uh, the young people, not, uh, many of them had never even had a course in, in preaching. Right. Some of them were already pa- pastoring churches. Sure. You know, you, go ahead. No, I was just agreeing with you. So, yeah. So. You, you have the Pentecostals who had a hard time keeping it to 15 minutes. <laughs> you have the Catholics whose uh, Pope had told them an eight-minute sermon is all you need. Right. Uh, so we were dealing with that uh, difference. Um, we found the young people uh, very focused on social justice issues mm-hmm. in their preaching, very eager to tell their own story in, in, in this preaching, very, uh, very insecure about making an appeal in preaching, not really sure how to do that. Sure. But the most powerful thing about it was the friendships that were formed. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. Across ideological, denominational, geographic boundaries. It was really spectacular. Yeah. Well, speaking of social justice issues, I think Autumn's got a question for you. Sorry, there was a helicopter going on. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to mute it out. So as someone with, you know, their fingers just on the pulse of faith and culture, what do you think, you mentioned social justice, but what are some of the most critical issues facing people of faith these days? Well, certainly uh, the books that I have read recently about race and religion continued a transformation in my own life about these things that really began with my encounter with these young black preachers. Uh, I was pulled into a powerful a transformative network of these young people who are college and seminary students uh, coming out of Morehouse College and um, uh, Fisk University and Howard University and uh, down in Texas, Wiley College and um, uh, other schools like this uh, that come out of strong uh, intellectual and uh, church backgrounds that are passionate about what's going on um, in the black community. 
And uh, this really has changed my life, being with these young people, mm-hmm. uh, especially uh, listening to them preach and talk about their own journeys. Mm-hmm. And um, I do think that this is, um, of all that's going on in the country right now, uh, COVID um, and the election, these things will pass. But this thing about race and religion and social justice and where the Christian church is and all of this is going to have the most uh, long-lasting impact, I think, on all of us. Uh, I, I certainly hope so. I'm going to do my little part to, to, to uh, support it. Well, speaking of that, uh, Dr. Moody, um, obviously we are knocking at the door of a presidential election, a national election across the country. We live in a divided community. Um, not only is the nation divided, but uh, our neighborhoods are divided. Our churches are divided. How do you think, as someone, as Autumn said, with their finger on the pulse of society, how do you think this pending election is going to affect the future of the church and the future of the country? Well, I already think uh, the presidency of Donald Trump has been one of the most consequential uh, presidencies in American history. Mm-hmm. Um, it, not only because of his disregard of so many norms that we've become accustomed to, not only by uh, his appointments to the courts, uh, and we could talk about that um, kind of as a separate thing, uh, but also what I am t- because of what I anticipate will be legislative responses to his mismanagement of the office of president and of the way he has conducted himself. I think you're, you're going to see uh, a, a, um, a push toward direct popular vote for president. I think there may even be a new rules about voting in general, perhaps uh, the, with the federal government getting more involved in what has been up until this time a state issue. Um, I think you're going to see uh, on the religious front, um, many people have already uh, commented about what this is going to do to white Christian America and um, uh, especially the white evangelical community, Mm -hmm. uh, how it has lost a great deal of cachet, we might say, and a good deal of American culture. Um, I wrote my article that's coming out this week about uh, my engagement with white Christian America and what I'm doing about it, but certainly uh, their dis- decision to endorse President Trump has reshaped who they are, and that's going to, I think, impact uh, their, uh, their ministry and identity for a long, long time. I'm not the first one to say this, of course. Many people are observing this, but... Um, so um, uh, it looks like if the polls are right, they were wrong last time, but if they're right this time, that uh, Trump uh, will be defeated, uh, whether he goes quietly. I think there's a lot of anxiety about what's going to happen around that stuff. Uh, who knows? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, this year has been so full of unbelievable things beginning, you remember, in January with the impeachment of the president, which we've forgotten all about because <laughs> sure. of the 
more incredible things that have happened month after month after month since right. then. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, really? So, you know, we're, I'm just, I continue to hope that, and I've always held to the belief that not only do we need a two party system, uh, we need a strong Republican Party, a strong Democratic Party. Even within the church, we, we need healthy churches, both on the right and left, to actually engage in productive dialogue, productive debate. Because when we do that, we challenge one another, and we, we, our, our belief systems are challenged. And you know we may find that we need to readjust our belief system on both sides of it. But it seems today that there is no room for honest debate, um, honest discussion, and differing of opinions in order to move the country forward, to move the church forward. It seems as though we are stuck in this rut of conquest. Not only must I be right in my argument, but you must be conquered for me to be right. And that just seems so, so destructive. Well, you're exactly right, Mitch. And all of that goes back to the 70s when you and I were young ministers. And uh, the vocabulary of war was introduced to describe the, these differences of opinion about things. So mm -hmm. we had the culture war. And once you start using that kind of language about a civic engagement, it brings forth tactics and attitudes, strategies that are, uh, that are more uh, at home on a battlefield than uh, mm -hmm. in a coffee shop where neighbors sit down and talk about matters of public policy. And this language of the war, the, the, culture war has got more and more uh, intense. It's gotten more and more extreme. And now on both sides of it, now, if you listen to uh, representatives of the right and left, each of them are saying, if we don't win, kiss America goodbye. If right. we don't win, kiss, kiss Jesus goodbye. I mean, it's all going to be lost. The world's going to blow up if we don't win this election. That's how dangerous our opponents are. Yeah. Well, Dr. Moody, it has been an absolutely delight. And uh, for our audience, we want to remind you to visit themeetinghouse.net, where you can find all of Dr. Moody's writings, his radio show, podcast. Uh, it's just an excellent site full of wonderful resources. But before we let you go, Autumn has one last question for you. So our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of everything we've talked about today, what is your more to tell? I want to tell you about my father, who on August the 14th, 1936, hitchhiked a ride into Owensboro, Kentucky before sunlight to watch the last public legal hanging in America. Wow. About 40, he was one of 20,000 people, <laughs> including reporters from every newspaper around the country. Mm. He stood 100 feet from the scaffold, and when I asked him what he remembered about it, he said, well, it was over so quick. 
that event uh, propelled Kentucky to uh, outlaw public executions. They were the last state to do so. About 15 months later, my dad was saved in a country revival meeting out in Davis County and was baptized in a creek. He was baptized into Jesus, as the Bible says, but he was also baptized into white supremacy. Mm. And I'm going to write my novel about these two events. Oh, wow, that's going to be great. My, as a way to talk about how all of us, to some extent, were baptized into white supremacy. Wow. Well, I cannot wait till you write it. We're going to let you go so you can start writing it because it sounds absolutely fascinating. So, Dr. Moody, thank you so much for spending uh, part of your day with us, and uh, we wish you the very best. Again, Dr. Moody's site is themeetinghouse.net. Make certain you check it out. Thank you so much. It's great to talk with you. We share many concerns. I'm a big fan of your work and Good Faith Media. God bless you, and let's keep things moving. Thank you. Well, audience, thank you so much for tuning in once again uh, to Good Faith Weekly. Until next time, keep living good faith.